The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Well, please remain standing and turn in your scriptures to Ephesians chapter 1, reading from verse 15 to verse 23. Ephesians 1, verse 15 to verse 23. This is God's word. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. We pray now, Lord God, that we would hear from you, your voice, your word, and that, Lord, we would be suitably impressed with your greatness and your majesty and your power and the wonder that it is for us to pray unto you. Lord, bless our hearts, encourage us, strengthen us, we pray, Uh, create in us those hearts which trust and love you, that we might have a large estimation of you, our great God. Do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, for we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it's interesting, is it not, that Immediately having spent uh, verses 3 to verse 14 uh, delineating the great salvation that we have in Father, Son, and Spirit, Paul now tells the Ephesians that ceaselessly he gives thanks to God for them. And then he tells us about his prayer life for them. Uh, he wants them to know about his prayers, that his what he is praying for is that experientially they might grow in the knowledge of God and of salvation. In other words, that which he has just written of in verses 3 to 14, they would experientially know more and more of. I think what Paul prays for here and the description of the one to whom he prays are profoundly instructive for us as Christians. Not only does the text tell us what Paul is praying for, the petitions of his prayer, the text actually spends more time describing the God to whom he prays than speaking of the petitions that he is praying. That's important for us. The description of the contents of prayer 
and the God who answers the prayer are the real emphasis of this section of Scripture. Here we see the one to whom Paul prays, the one to whom we have prayed even this very night, is the supreme authority, the almighty power. There is no name greater in heaven or on earth, in this age or the age to come, of the one to whom the Christian prays. That's why, friends, I hope we see the rich blessedness of Christian prayer tonight. The rich blessedness of Christian prayer. And I hope we'll see that really under two points of the text, verses 15 and 16, where we see the facts of prayer, the facts of prayer. Then in verses 17 to 23, we will see the emphasis of prayer, the emphasis of prayer. Again, we're being led not only to the petitions, but beyond the petitions to the one to whom Paul is praying. So we have before us the facts of prayer in verses 15 and 16. Just be quickly reminded of what we've read previously as we think of the facts of prayer. Uh, Verse 3, Paul has praised the Father for choosing the Ephesians in Christ before the foundation of the world. Verse 7, he's brought praise to Christ the Son. In him we have redemption through his blood. Then in verses 14 and 15, he's given praise to the Holy Spirit for his role in salvation, the Spirit being the guarantee of our inheritance. And now Paul tells them, I'm giving thanks to God for you, and I want you to know more about the God who has saved you, Father, Son, and Spirit, and the salvation that belongs to you. Notice the first thing he says about the Ephesians. Not only did they receive the letter that he's written to them, but prior to that, they received the truth. There in verse 15, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks. He has heard of their reputation for faith in the Savior and their love towards the saints. It's interesting here, we have two elements, faith and love. Faith towards Christ, love towards the saints. And it's worth noting that faith is extrospective. It's the opposite of introspective. Introspection is looking inwards, and there's a right place for that in the Christian life. But faith is fundamentally extrospective. It looks out and up to Christ. It looks out and up to the Savior in all his fullness, as Paul is going to write of him in these verses. But there's a secondary object here also, a secondary idea. The product of faith is also love towards the brethren. Another outward look. Faith has us look out and up to Christ and also outwards towards our brethren. Uh, This is a necessary aspect of faith because faith not only unites us to Christ, but unites us to our brethren in Christ. Faith and love, as we see here, faith towards Christ, love to the saints, Calvin states, includes generally the whole excellence of Christian character. 
In other words, Calvin says what Paul is giving thanks to God for here is the excellence of their character summarized in their faith towards the Savior and their love towards their fellow brethren. That's to say, friends, these are Ephesians, probably a mixture of Jews, but certainly Greeks as well, who have been redeemed from their fruitless ways and brought into a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Consequently, naturally, and by necessity, they also have love for their brethren. And this is a cause of great thanksgiving for Paul. I do not cease to give thanks to you. For this reason, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you. I want to pause for a minute and just think about thanksgiving. I want to say that thanksgiving is an essential element of Christian prayer, just as it ought to be an essential element of Christian living. Thanksgiving is the returning of heartfelt praise and honor and glory to God for who he is and what he has done for us. Who he is, what he has done, not just what he has done, because what he has done is predicated upon who he is. We give thanks to God for he is good, Psalm 136, who he is and what he has done. We sing the old hymn, don't we, that has the line in it, who like we his praise should sing. Who, like the Christian, should give thanks to the Lord? Thanksgiving is an act that is natural and necessary in the Christian life. It reflects a heart that's been touched by the grace of God, a heart that knows God, a heart that knows the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. For Paul, thanksgiving is natural. And for Paul, it's ceaseless. I do not cease to give thanks for you. He remembers them in his prayers. A couple of matters, friends. First, the fact of Paul's prayer. Paul prayed for them. Uh, Paul had planted this church. He's been separated from them from a number of years. Paul prayed for them. What he could not do in being on the ground presently at the time of writing, he could do through prayer. He could do through prayer. He could serve the Lord. He could minister unto his brethren by praying. And we would have to say from Paul's example, this is a peculiar duty of of elders and ministers and officers in the church of Christ. But equally so, it's a peculiar duty of all Christians to pray for each other. Are you praying for each other? Are you giving thanks for each other? Are you lifting each other's burdens up to God? Secondly, is the structure of prayer. It's strong on thanksgiving. Thankfulness, friends, ought to be a central part of our lives and an essential part of our prayers. As I've said, it's the natural outpouring of a heart that knows the grace of God. Thanksgiving. Are you a thankful person? Do you give thanks to God, not just for the good things that he's done in your life, but even when times are hard, 
do you still give thanks to God? Do you give thanks to God for who he is before you give thanks to God for what he has done? That's the pattern that Paul is laying out for us in prayer, thanksgiving of prayer. But we move now to the emphasis, uh, the, the crux of the prayer, if you will. That's verses 17 to the end of the chapter. The emphasis of the prayer, I hope, is the emphasis of this sermon. For we have here a small record of Paul's prayer life. He is writing to them, explaining to them what he is praying for. What's the structure of this prayer? Well, you can see in verse 16, Paul says he prays, he remembers them, he gives thanks to God. Then verse 17 begins with the word, that. You can see that's the first word of the sentence. Paul is saying, I give thanks that or because of these things. These are the petitions, verses 17, 18, and the first part of 19. Those are the petitions he prays. He's going to pray, essentially, that the wondrous work of salvation that he's spoken of in 3 to 14 might be known to them more fully. But then in the middle of verse 19, with the word according, there's a bit of a change. He moves away from petition and begins to give qualifiers to the petition. And the qualifiers take the shape of descriptions. Descriptions of the Father and what he is like and what he has done. And then descriptions of the Son. And it's interesting, friends, that as much as Paul pays attention and wants them to understand the petitions, more so does he want them to know the God to whom those petitions are made. If my counting's correct, but if my computer's correct, he spends 74 words describing the petitions he prays and 96 words describing the God to whom he prays, the Father and the Son. Friends, this is important. If we were saying within the prayer part itself, verse 17 onwards, what's the main emphasis? We'd have to say it's not the petitions. As magnificent as they are, it's the God of the petitions. The God, the Father and the Son, their power, their might, their supreme authority overall. That's what Paul's concerned with principally. We have to say, friends, not only are these petitions awesome petitions, but they are prayed to an awesome God. The description of God is the true emphasis of prayer here. And is that not the case as we look at the whole of chapter 1? Verse 3 to verse 14, what is it? It's a description of what God, Father, Son, and Spirit have done in salvation. Verses 17 to the middle of 19 are the petitions of prayer. And then Paul reverts to what? Another description, 19 to verses 23, a description of our great God. Why would Paul do this? Why would Paul not give them a long, long list of petitions he's praying? Well, the answer is the petitions are less important than the one to whom they are prayed. The petitions, as great, as wonderful, and they truly are magnificent. The petitions are less important than our understanding of the one to whom they are, they are prayed. 
Paul wants to assure the Ephesians, and he wants to assure you tonight, dear friend, that prayer is not a waste of time. Prayer is not a waste of time. That the one to whom we pray as Christians is real and is listening, and more than that, has absolute power and sovereign authority at his disposal, and that the God to whom we pray, our Father in heaven, is willing and able and ready to exercise that power and dominion upon our behalf according to our prayers and according to his great wisdom. God is the focus. The Son is the focus. Lord willing, they will be our focus tonight. But let's consider the petitions first, verses 17 to 19. The petitions. As I've said, Paul is going to echo what he's already written in verses 3 to 14. He's going to speak about salvation that they might know experientially in more depth, with more rigor, in more detail, with more trust and love flowing from it, the details of their salvation. And he's going to focus particularly upon the work of the Holy Spirit. Not that the Spirit is mentioned, but all that he prays for here is the work of the Spirit, that transformative work of the Spirit in their hearts and their minds. Paul says in verse 17 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, here's the first petition, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. A spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. One writer says about revelation, and the same can be said about wisdom, we do not generally associate revelation purely with the human spirit. In other words, he's saying it doesn't generally come from the human spirit. It comes from the Holy Spirit. We ask God for wisdom, do we not? Lord, give me wisdom. We don't think it emanates or generates with us. The work of of giving them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, uh, Paul is praying for a divine work, the work of the Holy Spirit that the Spirit would apply the knowledge of redemption and the benefits of redemption to the Ephesians more and more, little by little, day by day, that as they use the means of grace diligently, God would pour out his blessing upon them. They would know their God all the more. They would understand the revelation given to him. They would be made wise in the Spirit. Friends, I think this is a great wonder to us that the inscrutable God should make himself known to us. The unknowable God, at least in terms of salvation, should be made known to us. And Paul can pray for them and really show us the work of the Spirit that God gives us a spirit of wisdom and knowledge and revelation of him. That's staggering. We're naturally blind, and yet our eyes have been opened. And day by day, as we draw near to God, as we commune with him in word and in sacrament, as we had this morning and through prayer, what's happening? God is revealing himself to us, to you. That's staggering news. 
that God should fill us with his spirit. Friend, are you growing in the knowledge of God? Are you making use of the means that God gives for you to grow? Word, sacraments, prayer, fellowship of the saints, and so on. Or are you stagnant? Spiritually stagnant. Are you resting on achievements of years past? Resting on your devotion of years past? Rather than searching, knocking, and seeking. This is what the Spirit does. He opens our eyes more and more in the knowledge of God. He also prays there in verse 18 another petition uh, which has a kind of lead petition and then three results. It's a remarkable verse 18 and 19. The second petition is this, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, and here's the three parts now, one, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, Two, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And three, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? You see the, the, the root petition, verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened and the three products of that, you may know the hope to which he has called you, you may know the riches of his glorious inheritance, and you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believed. The root petition is there in verse 18, that we might have the eyes of our hearts enlightened. The heart here is being used, as we know in Scripture, for the the seat of emotions, the seat of intellect, the seat of morality. And Paul is praying that their hearts might be enlightened. Again, it's the work of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who dwells within the Christian. What's he praying? That their hearts would be reformed. Their hearts would be transformed. Their hearts would be renewed. Their mind, their affections, and their desires would be changed. It's that ongoing ministry of the Spirit in the Christian which will continue till the day we die, a progression in holiness. The Spirit is doing it. We are part of it, but the Spirit is doing it. This is a divine work. Friends, there's great comfort here for us. Perhaps you're you're, you're really struggling with a sin. And you feel perhaps enslaved to it. If you're a Christian, the news is you're not enslaved to it. Objectively, you're a slave to righteousness, Romans 6. And the good news is that the Spirit, if you beseech him, will open the eyes of your heart, will enlighten your heart. And what will happen when your heart is enlightened? You will know what is the hope to which he has called you. Do you hear that, friends? God has called you to a hope. It's an effectual call. It's when God calls his children and they answer in faith. That's an irreversible call. He's called us. He's saved us. He's delivered us from our sins. Our minds and hearts are becoming more and more alert to that reality, understanding I hope there are none who can say that now, after being a Christian for years, I I hope we can all say we're more advanced in our understanding, our appreciation, our love of our salvation than when we were first saved. 
And that heart transformation produces what? Hope. Hope. That is to say, the Christian has a present hope now, which should energize us for holy living. He who has this hope, the Apostle John says, purifies himself. A present hope and a future hope, the hope of glory. The second thing this enlightening uh, of the eyes of the heart brings to us is a knowledge of the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. It's a difficult, difficult verse. This there's division amongst the commentators over what they think it means. Some, some think it means that we have an inheritance that comes from God. We have the inheritance that comes from God. And that's certainly true in scripture. Others think it is that we are the inheritance that belongs to God. That the church, the believer, uh, the, the, the Christian, belongs to God as God's inheritance. I tend to think it's the latter, that we are an an inheritance that belongs to God. One writer says this. He says, think of it. God owns all the heavens and numberless worlds, but we are his treasures. The redeemed are worth more than the universe. We ought to be delirious with this truth. Paul prays that we will see this with our heart's eyes. Friend, there's riches here. And in a sense, we are the riches. We are the treasure. We are the inheritance as we belong to God. We must believe it. We must hide it in our hearts. And we must live out of that truth. The third thing that we see in verse 19, the third effect of this enlightening of the eyes, is a remarkable statement. Verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? The immeasurable greatness of his power to us who believe. Think about that. Paul says you might know of the immeasurable greatness. It's kind of built-in contradiction, isn't it? God can't be measured. His greatness is unmeasurable. His greatness is unsearchable, but that you might know more of it. Paul's going to pray the same thing in Ephesians 3 verse 18, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is staggering stuff. The love of Christ, it surpasses knowledge. The immeasurable greatness of God, you may know it. It's immeasurable, by the way, but you may know it. There's a staggering paradox on show here. Immeasurable greatness of his power, listen, toward us who believe. It's not just immeasurably great power and might somewhere out there. It's directed toward us, the Christian, you who believe. 
It's not uncommon for the Christian to feel powerless in this life or for the Christian to feel hopeless in this life. Two things we must note about this immeasurably great power. First, the objective fact of it. The objective fact is this. We exist in the hand and according to the plan of the God who is immeasurably great in power. We dwell, as it were, in the palm of his hand. That one who is immeasurably great in power. And we are held by his great power. A power that cannot be measured or fathomed by us. And secondly, if that is the case, that we dwell in the hand of this God, feelings of powerlessness or hopelessness on our part have no actual reflection on the objective reality of God's power. If point one is true, God is objectively and immeasurably powerful, then our subjective feelings about how we feel on any given day, at any given moment, hard-pressed by the trials of life, have no objective change upon God's power. How we feel about God's power in the moment is, quite frankly, irrelevant to God's power in the moment. It's immeasurably great. You can't comprehend it. We can't comprehend it. And is it true that this power works for us? Is it true that this power works towards us? Because Paul says it is. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Have we not just seen this at work? He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. We could go on and on and on about the immeasurable greatness of the power of our God towards us on our behalf for our good, not just saving us, though that would be great enough. But his continued presence with us, the Spirit indwelling us, and the daily transforming of hardened hearts. Isn't that staggering? That we who love sin, at least natively love sin, should be weaned from sin in this age. But it's interesting Halfway through verse 19, Paul moves on in a way from petitions. He, he kind of changes tack. He moves from the petitions to a greater description of the God to whom he prays. Think on this. Paul is teaching us how to pray. He's teaching us of the marvelous richness of Christian prayer, and he does so in this way. He spends more time talking about God than he does the things he's prayed more time describing the great power of God and the supreme authority and position of Christ over all things than he does telling them about what he's prayed for. That's really important. Paul's deep desire is that the Ephesians and you here tonight, dear Christian, might know your God, Father, Son, and Spirit. 
that you might know the one who has worked salvation for you. You might commune with Father. You might commune with Son. You might commune with Spirit and learn to trust them more and more. He wants us to know the persons of the triune God as who they are and what they've done for us. And the first qualifier there we see in the word, words immediately after the word according, verses 19 to 21. Here's the first qualifier. It's long. So he's praying that they have the eyes of the heart enlightened, that they might know the immeasurable greatness of his power. Verse 19, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. The first thing he focuses upon is the power that is available for us is the power that raised Christ from the dead. Resurrection power. The power to give life. Think about that power to raise the dead, friends. That's not a human power. It was given to some humans, as we see in, in Scripture, but it's a divine power. It, it's, it's not a power that we can generate. And this is a power we see throughout all of Scripture. We see in creation how God created life. Uh, we saw how he created physical life and spiritual life. We see in the curse how he has the right to take life. We see in regeneration and salvation how he restores uh, spiritual life. We see in resurrection how he brings back physical life. And we see in the new heavens and the new earth how he brings physical and spiritual together in one, making them perfect and eternal. This is the power of God. at work towards us. It's not just a power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's a power which set him in the heavenly places, seated him at his right hand, far above all rule and authority and power. He's given a name above every name, it, not in this age, but in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. God raised his son from the dead and then he brought him back to heaven and sat him at his right hand. The position of glory and honor and power and authority. To give one that place, again, is not a human right, a human power, a human authority. Who in the world can sit someone next to the right hand of God? Who can give authority and power? Who can enthrone Jesus? None but God. Divine prerogatives. Divine power. Do you see what Paul's doing here? He said, I've mentioned all these petitions, but think on the one to whom we pray. He's describing almighty and unfathomable and immeasurable power. He's describing supreme authority. He's describing unmatched glory and honor and dominion that has been given to the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, think on this. 
well do we sing the old hymn, Help of the Helpless, O Abide with Me. He's the only help, immeasurably great. And he has set Christ in that most remarkable place at his right hand. But to what end? Good verse 22. <clears throat> he put all things under his feet and gave him, he- him as head over all things to the church. To the church. And the church is then described, verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. God has put all things under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has put him as head over all things to the church, for the church. The church which is his body, he fills it and is the fullness of him. There is no greater authority than the Lord Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. Why does he do it? Many reasons, but the reason here, to the church. To the church. He rules, he defends, he conquers, he ordains all things for the good of his church, which is his body. That's amazing. We can see the church persecuted throughout the world. See troubles everywhere. He rules, defends, conquers, ordains all things, ultimately for the benefit of the church and the Christian. That is to say, friends, we must hold fast in our heart whatever God has ordained, whatever Christ is doing through his supreme rule, whether good or ill in this life, is ultimately under the jurisdiction of Jesus Christ. That's powerful. That's faith-filling doctrine. We can say this, friends, it is inconceivable. It is inconceivable that Christ would ordain anything that ultimately and terminally would hurt his own body or his own brethren. Whatever befalls us in this life, is a divine means and mechanism to purify us in this life or perhaps even to transport us to the next. To be with God is far better. The church is united to Christ. The fullness of him, we can't even go into what that means. We can't even begin to say how how we could be the fullness of Christ. But it says it here where his body, he is the head. Christ has chosen to indwell his church by his spirit. Friends, consider this. Prayer lays hold of this God. Prayer lays hold of this God. Not the small God that we often approach in our prayers. Prayer lays hold of the immeasurable greatness and power and might of the triune God. And it's amazing, is it not, that the immeasurably great and powerful one, the eternal God, the transcendent one, our Lord says, call him this, 
our Father in heaven. Isn't that amazing? Prayer is not a waste of time. Prayer is not futile. It's a great lie of Satan to make us think that way. Don't believe it. We're praying to this God, not the small God of our minds. But not only is this great, uh, this God great in power, he's great also in mercy and in kindness. And friend, if you're not, if you're not worshiping God, if you don't love the Lord Jesus Christ, or if you've confessed Christ and you're wandering away, you can come back to Jesus Christ this very night. Right now. You can turn from your sins. You can receive the forgiveness of your own sins by this immeasurably powerful God and this immeasurably merciful God. He promises to blot out your sins, to remember them no more, to remove them as far as the east is from the west to you, to cleanse you that you'll be whiter than snow. Come to him. Return to him. Even if you're a, a Christian of many years, always come to him. Always return to him. Christian, pray to him with confidence. He's our father in heaven. What a father. Did you ever know a father like this? Of course not. So immeasurably great, yet so close to his children. Friends, this is the rich blessedness of Christian prayer. Let's pray. What a great God you are. A Father so wonderful and loving to choose us in the Savior. Son, we worship you for your incarnation, your life and death, your resurrection, your ascension, your return to glory. Holy Spirit, we praise you. Impress upon our hearts this night all that we have heard. Be pleased to work in each one of us what we need, Lord God. According to our great need, minister in us and to us greatly, that we may love you and trust you and praise you. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.